11. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, that was Nathan. He's over on the side doing stuff. (laughs) Technology is wonderful. We're in John chapter 11. We're in verses 45 through 57, if you guys want to open your Bibles. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. We are once again on the topic of belief versus unbelief. And we're going to go through this this pattern in John. We're going to tack at this from the the view of what does it mean to be hard-hearted? What does it mean um, to, to be so blocked up in your heart and in your mind that you are unwilling to listen. There's a a term in philosophy, it's called totalism. And that is that you are so confident in what you believe, so confident in your system, that even when you are presented with evidence that might contradict it, it, when it doesn't fit your worldview, the response is actual, it's anger and rejection. We're going to see that from these guys, that their, their viewpoint is so fixed and they are so confident in what they believe that even in the face of evidence, they are unchanged, they are unmoved, and their response is violent anger. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about materialism, that idea that A plus B must equal C because of the way the material world works. The material world is very reliable. It's very reliable that one plus one equals two and two and two equals four. What we can't do, though, is we can't necessarily apply that to God because he is outside of our material world. It's a relationship. When we talk about our prayer, our prayer life isn't an A plus B equals C. It's not, I pray for healing, God receives my prayer, and then he heals. It doesn't work like that. It's, I pray God listens, and then God answers because it's a relationship. And sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. But my time in prayer is my time with my Heavenly Father. It's time where we get to just spend time together. Just like calling home to your folks or or spending time with a friend, it is time together in relationship. It is not A plus B equals C. Because when we have that materialist view of prayer life, where A plus B equals C, when C doesn't come, what happens? What happens? Because at that point, it's tempting to judge God. It's tempting to wonder, right? Especially in this miracle, we're reading about, we're reading about Lazarus. And remember that Mary and Martha had sent a messenger. They literally pleaded with Jesus. So, Why did God allow Lazarus to get sick? Why did God allow Lazarus to die? Why wasn't their prayer effective? Mary and Martha pled with God for the health of their brother, and Lazarus dies anyway. That is that A plus B equals C thinking. And Jesus tells us, he tells us right at the very beginning of the chapter that, no, this is not going to end in death, but it is for God's glory that these events are going to happen. 
but it tempts us into this cycle of, is my faith too small? Did I not pray right? Was I not at the right place or the right time? Were my words wrong? Or is there something wrong with God? Does he not know about the suffering? Does he not care? All of that comes from that misunderstanding, that materialist view that A plus B must equal C. Not a relationship. Because God hears every prayer and God answers every prayer. And his answers are yes or no or wait. But it's a relationship. And it's his plan, his authority. So that leads us to our theme for today. Our theme for today is being comfortable in uncertainty. Being comfortable when we don't always have the answers. Uh, Poet John Keats put it this way. I had not a dispute, but a disquisition, there's a great word, with Dilk, upon various subjects. Several things dovetailed in my mind, I don't think I've ever had anything dovetail in my mind, just FYI. And at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. And I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without irritable reaching after fact and reason, without responding in that anger, responding in that violent manner that we're going to see from the Pharisees. Capable of being content in uncertainty, in mystery, in doubt. The Trinity is a good example. It's a great example. We understand that God is one. We understand that God is three separate equal beings, equal in qualities, equal in power, in perfect relationship. How do we reconcile that? We don't. There's a mystery that lies in there. We, I mean, there's books and books and books that talk about the nature of the Trinity. There's books and books and books of people that have tried to claw at this. And we certainly can spend a lot of time. And we don't want to ever give up on trying to understand God or the Scripture or the Bible or anything. But it's a mystery. God's above us. He is greater than we are. And sometimes we just have to surrender ourselves to that, to the fact that, We're not going to know the answers. We may not have the answers right away, right? I mean, think about the disciples. Jesus has told them plainly he is going to die. He has told them plainly that that's going to happen. And they're going, um, what? Even after it happens, they're not certain, right? So sometimes we just have to sit in God's answers, hear the answers, and be okay that he is sovereign God, that he is above us, that there are going to be things that we don't understand. Because the opposite, that hard-hearted, that totalist view, can't accept the mystery. They can't sit in that uncertainty. And that, again, doesn't mean we don't pursue understanding. Of course we do. But we must remain soft-hearted, vulnerable, and humble. So we're going to back this up. We're going to back up this idea of humility with some verses. You go to Proverbs 11.2. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14 say, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. James 4, 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And he's quoting Proverbs 3, 34 there. Micah 6, 8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Soft-hearted, vulnerable, humble. In our story, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. He was not just dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. 
Here we are, we are looking at the reaction. We are looking at the aftermath of this miracle. The end of that passage, it's amazing. And the end of this passage gives us an insight into how the scriptures were written, how the Holy Spirit works through us for God to speak. But before we get there, John gives us a picture, a picture of belief and unbelief. And over and over again, John has recorded these aftermath lessons for us. We get a miracle, then usually a teaching, something Jesus said, and then the reaction. So how did people react to what Jesus said and did? It's not really a pretty picture. It's funny, there's only like really two instances in the book of John of people responding in belief that we get a detail of the a picture of their, of their belief. Most of the time, John leaves it to one sentence, many believed. And then he goes on, he spends like three or four verses talking about the unbelief of people. Does that over and over and over again. We're going to go through the examples. But it strikes me that John has repeated this throughout these, these 11 chapters. It must be pretty stinking important, must it? That, that he goes through and says this over and over again. I can't imagine, I've, you know, I've never written anything, you know, by hand this long before. But to have written it, and then to have it copied. We have over 5,000 copies of the, of the New Testament. Um, there's close to 10,000 between the other two. But you think about it, how many people had to write this down 5,000 times by hand, right? It must have been pretty important. They must have believed in it pretty much to sit down and do that. I didn't like doing my homework when I was assigned it. These people did it on purpose of their own free time. So maybe we should listen. So in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 26, this is where Jesus has the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. So he says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's the lesson. Before that, he had told the woman about her relationship status, did sort of a, a mini miracle, read her past. Then he gives her this teaching. And he concludes it by saying, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the one you have been waiting for. So let's look at the reaction. It says right here, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. You want to know how powerful your testimony is? Here it is. They believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. That's the reaction we're looking for, isn't it? We want that to happen more often. It's not going to. Let's go to John chapter 5, the healing of the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals this paralyzed man. And notice the parallel. The Samaritan woman returned to the village and spoke about what happened to her. The Samaritans had open minds and open hearts. They listened, and many believed. So let's go to, to 5.8. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now listen, just like the Samaritan woman, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Same thing. He goes to them and tells them about Jesus. So why didn't the same thing happen that happened in Samaria? 
Why didn't that happen here? Jesus still follows up, just like he did there. The miracle is the healing. He follows up by teaching. But listen to the reaction in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to what? To persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. He healed a paralyzed man. And all they can think of is he's breaking the Sabbath. And he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, they have run into a mystery, a problem they cannot explain. But A plus B must equal C. There is no other option. This cannot be the Messiah. It is not in the realm of possibility in their minds. They have no room for wonder, for mystery. They cannot sit and be comfortable in the face of this uncertainty. So they respond in anger, in persecution. Let's go to chapter 6. It's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on water. So we're in verse 30. It says, So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Hallelujah. Amen. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. There's the teaching. There it is. These folks ate their fill of the loaves. They had all they could eat of the bread and the fish. And what's the response? It's grumbling, grumbling from the crowds and then desertion from some of the followers. So verse 60, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus said no one from the beginning, which of them did not believe and who would betray him? He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And then verse 66, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. How is this possible? How is it possible that the Samaritans, the half-Jew rejects, can accept Jesus, but the faithful, the Jewish folks, can't? The Samaritan woman got a small prophecy, a quick rereading of her, of, her, of her past, and she was convinced. These folks ate God bread, ate God fish, made from nothing, and they couldn't accept Jesus as the bread of life. Go to John chapter 9, where Jesus heals the blind man. It starts off, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, that word means sent, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. This, remember, we talked about this when we talked about it a few weeks ago. We talked about this being the pattern of the unbeliever, of the unbelief. Their, their trial, their inquisition, starts with the conclusion. Verse 16. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. No open mind. No open heart. They start with the conclusion. It's not a question. They're not going, could he? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be from God? They've already made up their mind. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, therefore. 
must not be. Then they will ignore, or at least they're not swayed by the evidence. At the end, they're going to attack the witness. They're going to invalidate his testimony, not because it is untrue, but because they don't like what it says. So verse 34, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Man is standing there. His parents have testified he was born blind. Now he can see. He's saying, yeah, I was blind. I put mud on my eyes. I went and washed. Now I can see. That's the evidence. That's the testimony that they have received. And what's their response? It's not, wow, that's pretty remarkable. I wonder what was in that mud. Uh, is there there's more of that mud? Could we uh, maybe get that secret formula? We could bottle that and sell it. Maybe they're not capitalist. I don't know. But it's a strange response. They turn to the man who was healed and say, we invalidate you. You were steeped in sin at birth. Therefore, your testimony has no weight here. We reject you. Hard hearts. And then it escalates. They throw them out. And then we get to chapter 10, verse 31. This is the escalation. It says, again, his Jewish opponents did what they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Do you hear the hard-heartedness? Do you hear the anger, the closed ears, the closed minds? And we have to admit, Jesus is mind-boggling. He does stretch our minds. He does stretch our understanding of reality. Here, he's turned water into wine. He's healed the official son. He's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water. He's healed a paralyzed man. He's healed a blind man. And then, then verse 41 of 1141 says, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's the next miracle, the next thing. Let me ask you, what do you expect to come next in the text when you see that? What should be the next chapter? Uh, this is Phil Dickerson reporting live from the scene. We're here in Bethany. We've just seen a man who's been dead for four days. He's come out of the grave. Lazarus, Lazarus, tell us what happened. Why isn't there an interview? Why isn't there a conversation with Lazarus? He's been dead for four days. The next thing that should come, right, is a conversation. Lazarus died and was put in a tomb for four days. Jesus of Nazareth had some locals roll the stone away. He said, and I'm quoting here, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. Where have you been for the last four days? What is heaven like? What did you see? What did you hear? What happened? Nope. None of that. Not a bit. The next thing we get is the gathering of the Sanhedrin. There's a mystery. There it is. We have no idea. We have no idea what it was like for him. Because if there's one thing we all want to know, right, it's that. All of us. We get some, some little glimpses. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. 
what he says. Inexpressible things, wonderful things, things that no one is permitted to tell. That's what we get. We must be comfortable with uncertainty. We know much more about hell than heaven. Isn't that striking? Go to Luke chapter 16. It gives us a window, a scene from the afterlife. It's the rich man in, in torment and Abraham and Lazarus. They're able to see and to talk with him, but unable to bridge the chasm between them. Jesus describes heaven as a mansion with many rooms that he goes ahead of us to prepare. We have glimpses in the Old Testament of flying chariots, of of ladders where angels ascend and descend, of a a throne room with Jesus at the right hand of God, of 12 thrones for the apostles, of angels with four wings worshiping God continuously. There's still a lot we don't know and can't know. We have to be content with the mystery, with the unknown. Either way, Clearly, the picture of heaven, the picture of the afterlife, is not the point of John writing this down. That's not the point. Clearly, this has a different purpose. Jesus says what? It's for the glory of God that these events will happen. It is that God will be glorified and that he will be glorified in these events. That's what he says. This resurrection is witnessed by hundreds of people. Hundreds. And notice, there's no denying the miracles. No one ever stands in front of Jesus and says, that never happened. No one. There isn't a single record that we can find of anyone ever saying that Jesus lied about what he did. No one says that. Isn't that crazy? These are amazing claims. Blind men healed, paralyzed men walking, lepers healed. Incredible claims. 5,000 people fed from nothing. And everyone goes, yeah, It happened. There were too many people there. There were too many witnesses. All of them say, yeah, this is what actually happened. Even the people who want to kill Jesus do not call him a liar or deny his miracles. We could learn a lot from that, couldn't we? Our society right now loves to try and discredit the Bible, loves to try and say these things never happened. Nobody at this time did. Nobody for hundreds of years would dare say that these things never happened. Skeptics should consider there is not a single page recorded denying Jesus' works and ministry. Even Roman histories confirm the events of the Bible. That says something. I was thinking about this. and you know, Right now we're in this phase in our country where very Egyptian, we're taking down statues and and destroying them or smashing them. Something the Egyptians used to do when somebody that you know, what used to have a high position, they didn't like them anymore, the next generation would come along. They would take their statues and they would deface them and then they would bury them because they believed that those statues were actual representations of the people and that if they didn't have access to the sun, if they didn't have access to the space where that God was, whatever the God was, that they were rejected in the afterlife. So they would take and deface their statues and then bury them someplace. Isn't that strange that we now do the exact same thing? It makes it tough, though, when we talk about Egyptology or archaeology, when they go and do these things, because, you know, they're like, well, we have no record of that person. And then they dig up underground. They're like, we found a bunch of buried statues of this person, and these statues clearly weren't here. What happened? Well, somebody got mad, and they removed them from all records. They'll take them off the walls. They'll take them off of all of their recorded writings and bury them because somebody down the road decided they didn't like them. And now we, standing here, we have no idea. We talk about the importance of history, right? This is the importance of it. It's not for us. It's not even for five generations from now or ten generations from now. It's for thousands of years from now that our ancestors can look back and accurately see what happened, right? Anyway, a little diatribe there, sorry. So there's not a single skeptic in the place. They all accept that Lazarus has come out of the tomb. But Jesus is divisive. So here we are in verse 45, 1145. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, did what? They believed in him. John, could we hear a little bit more from those folks? No. 
That's it. Many believed in him. But some of them did what they went to the Pharisees and told them what had Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the 71 members of the ruling council. The high priest, Caiaphas, is sitting there. John is clear, and he mentions that Caiaphas is the high priest of that year. It's a funny thing. There's a funny thing that happens in, in the book of Acts where Paul has no idea who the high priest is. Paul, a guy who grew up in the church, was one of the leaders of the church, who He's sitting there and he has, oh, you're the high priest for this year? Huh, had no idea. Sorry. That's a tragedy that this office, because the high priest was supposed to be a Levite who was elected from among the priests. It was a lifelong appointment. And the high priest who basically played the role of Moses, pleading with God for the people. They were supposed to be this spokesperson, this person who would tell the people prophecy for God, say, this is what God says, and then take the peoples, their plights, and take them into the Holy of Holies and, and plead with before God their case. And now it's being sold year after year. Cheap. His job was to lead the Levites and also to plead with God, to commune with God about the needs of Israel, to mediate between God and Israel. And here it is, it's a sold political position. He's appointed by one of the Roman regents. Think about like Herod the Great or, or Pilate or those guys. But you could bribe or trade with the king for this influential position. Some of them weren't even Jew. So this is Caiaphas. His father-in-law is Ananias, who was high priest when Jesus was born. He was appointed, Caiaphas was, by Valerius Gratus and was high priest from 18 to 36 or 37 AD. And our theme, remember, is hard-hearted. So what do you think went through his head like two or three years ago when Jesus came to Jerusalem and drove out the moneylenders for the first time? What about the interviews of the paralyzed man? the interviews of the blind man. Report after report. Demons cast out, lepers healed, people fed, children healed, women healed, the lame walk, the blind see. I wonder if Ananias told him about the star and the magi, about the encounter that Herod the Great had with these wise men that came from the east looking for the Messiah. Maybe, maybe he heard the story, maybe he didn't. Surely he remembers how Herod commanded that all babies under two be killed. He most certainly remembers that story. And then this. He turns on the TV and he sees this report. Lazarus, who was in the tomb for four days and is now out walking and talking. Tradition says Lazarus lived another 30 years or so. So what drives a man, what drives a person in the face of these miracles, in the face of these reports, to react the way that he does? It's a powerful lesson in humility, isn't it? He says, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Isn't that a good thing? And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. He's afraid. He's afraid that people will believe in him. Here's the thing. If he was a prophet, why not receive him as a prophet? Tradition said they should have received him. Tradition says they should have given him an audience and a prophet's honor. Think about all the prophets that have come before, Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, Micah, all those people. All of them were regarded as speakers for God. They were given audiences with kings and whatever help they needed. Kings of Israel and kings of other nations received the prophets. A prophet of Yahweh was an important person, someone to listen to, right? So why not this one? Why not receive him? Why not listen? Why not hear? Why not hear what he has to say? Why not give him a prophet's welcome? You've received the reports of what he is doing. Their, their response makes no sense. Here's 71 of, of Jewish leaders of, of the church, and they're going, gosh, here's this guy doing all of these wonderful things. 
Let's receive him and see what he has to say. And it's not that the prophets were always nice or that they always delivered good news to the kingdoms. Most of the time, they were walking in and going, turn back to God. You're doing it wrong. Turn back. Isaiah called kings Satan. They still received him. They still listened. So why not these guys? Elijah taunted the queen and her prophets of Baal. The Levites never thought about stoning him to death. But most of the prophets warned Israel and Judah to turn back to God. So why didn't they do what their ancestors did? Say, hey, call up Pilate, call up Herod, come to the temple, to the court of the, of the Gentiles. You can't come any further than that. Come to the court of the Gentiles. There's a prophet from God here. He has come. He has things to say to you. Why not? Why didn't that happen? Why aren't they feverishly writing down what Jesus said so it could be added to the scrolls? Why didn't they assign a guard and a scribe like they did for every other prophet? They even tolerated John the Baptist. They didn't welcome him, but they tolerate him. But then no one said a thing as John the Baptist was imprisoned and then killed. Strong medicine, isn't it? They speak their fears out loud. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They have their priorities backwards. If they really believed the scriptures, they would be like their ancestors. A prophet has come and is telling us to turn back to God. It ain't pleasant. It ain't pretty. He's telling us we got to change things. He's telling people we got to love each other and to love God. He tells us to stop burdening the people and to turn back to God. He tells us that our, our hearts are empty. He calls us whitewashed tombs. John called them vipers. Jesus tells them to search out the scriptures. But if we look, do we see an army? Has he raised up an army? No. Do we see protests? Are there protests in the streets? No. Is there civil unrest? Is there a group of people that are threatening to overthrow the Romans? No. Has anyone been hurt? Or has anything been damaged by Jesus or his followers? No. They have been a mobile school and hospital. These people are deathly afraid of teaching and healing. Now, I have to tell you, like I said, it's not like we would react that much differently, but we have to have open hearts and open minds. If you come to me and you said, so there's this guy, his name is Joshua. He's a carpenter, and he wants to come to the church, and he wants to preach on Sunday. He's got about a dozen guys with him. They're all blue-collar fishermen, tax collectors. They're down-to-earth guys. What do you say? Well, what's he teaching? What's this guy teaching? Well, he says, love God and love your neighbor. All right. He says, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. In fact, even fantasizing about those things is wrong. Okay, well, that's a little uncomfortable, but I can take it. The strange part is, he says he is from God. Now, right there, all of us are lying if we say that we are not like the Sanhedrin, because there are plenty of wackos out there, and we don't want to lead people astray. We don't want to give voice to opinions that aren't biblically sound. But, like with our missions, we do want you to hear from folks who are out doing the Lord's work. So when they say, well, he feeds and heals people, then he teaches the hard part is when he says that he is from God, that he says that he is the Son of Man, that he says that he is the Messiah. So at that moment, when we're challenged like that, what do we do? What do we do? We have to be like Nicodemus. Go to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. It's a vulnerable spot, isn't it? That's a soft-hearted spot, but still wise and weary, right? He's not doing this out in public. He's not going out and, and doing it. He's privately going to learn. 
to find out. His method is proved out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. It says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Test them. Go find out. Test. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. But that is not how, the, how Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin respond. So you've got to underline and highlight verse 50. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas wants to capitalize on this fear. He wants to hold on to his position and power just like everyone else. Quite frankly, he is evil, though. The Bible says do not commit murder. It's very clear. Capital punishment is allowed, but not murder. Blasphemy, murder, rape, and adultery, those are the crimes you could be put to death for. And they will convict Jesus of blasphemy. It's probably in a week or so, and send him to the cross. But the plot, the conspiracy to kill Jesus, is cemented right here. Caiaphas says, kill Jesus to preserve what we have. Get rid of Jesus and keep the status quo. So verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. It's probably about 12 miles north of Jerusalem where they went to stay. So could you imagine being one of the disciples right there? You just watched the hand of God come down and touch the earth. They just saw it with their own eyes. The disciples knew Lazarus before he died. They listened to the messenger who came to talk about his illness. Then they watched him come out of the tomb. Imagine what they have seen so far. These blue-collar guys. They have drank the best wine from ceremonial jars that a moment before were full of water. They have ate the bread and the fish made from nothing. They passed out and collected the baskets that fed the 5,000. They saw the relief on a father's face as his child was healed. They have seen paralyzed men walk and blind men see. They huddled in a boat and watched Jesus come to them over the water. Now, they're running for their lives. The good guys, the priests who were supposed to stand between the Romans and the Jews, the leaders who were supposed to be the mediators between God and Israel, the men who Saturday after Saturday spoke for God, the men who slaughtered lambs and bulls on the altar of the Lord. It had to be something, didn't it? To have walked those temple courts, to see Herod's temple. Wouldn't you have had hope as a believer walking into a cathedral like that? with Jesus, to walk in there and to see that magnificent place and to think about what's coming, the kingdom that is coming, that Jesus says, has said is coming. And now they're running for their lives from the very men that they have trusted their entire lives with their faith. The men who were supposed to be the good guys have issued a death warrant. All the hopes ended right there, right? No revival, no turning back to God, no Israel and Judah reunited, no end of Roman rule. They were suddenly on the, on the run. And Thomas's words from verse 16, they suddenly take on a different meaning, don't they? Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is that moment where everything changed, where Judas realizes that money and fame and fortune aren't coming his way. He's an outlaw now, and he will betray Jesus in his hurt and his anger. Verse 55 spells out the tension. This is the third Passover. Jesus has come to the last two, and it has been something. The people are wondering, will he come? The Sanhedrin has resolved to kill him. Will he come? So verse 55 says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? 
but the chief priests of the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. You guys ever see the movie Silverado? It's one of my favorites. Brian Dennehy plays the, the corrupt sheriff. You know, at the end of the movie, the bad guys, they've, they've kidnapped a little boy. They've, you know, done all their bad stuff. There's been, there's been murder. And then, you know, Kevin Klein, who's, you know, you don't really know, is he going to be a good guy? Is he going to be a bad guy? But you have this showdown that's coming between this corrupt sheriff and the, and the good guys in the, in the middle of the town. And that's where this is. Suddenly, the, the people that were supposed to be the good guys are exposed as corrupt. Suddenly, a showdown is coming. Is Jesus going to come? Is he going to come? Is he going to meet these guys in the streets or not? So we're going to go back to, to verse 50. If you want to know, by the way, like I say, how, how inspiration works, when we talk about the scriptures being inspired by the Holy Spirit, about it being a partnership between man and God, it's spelled out for us right here in verse 50. Because Caiaphas, who is bad guy, he says something absolutely incredible. What does he say? He says, <clears throat> sorry, coughing a little bit. <laughs> he says that it is better for one man to die. It's better for one man to die to preserve the nation. That's what he says. It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, he meant that, that they're going to kill Jesus to preserve the Romans and, and Jewish setting, everything the way that it was. The Holy Spirit said, I got a little different plan for those words. When we try and understand what does the cross mean, what did the cross do for us? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross Holy Spirit says, let me tell you, it's right here in verse 50. It is better for you, better for you and me, that one man die, for who? For the people, than that the whole nation perish. And the Holy Spirit tells us. He says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied, he spoke for God that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So when anyone asks about the cross, about what it means, about why Jesus died, come right here. Put a bookmark here. Underline this. Highlight it. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. There it is. It's substitution. Substitutionary atonement. Those are big words, but this is exactly it. One man is going to go to the cross for us all. The place that we all deserve, he's going to go to. He's going to take it. It's absolutely incredible. So the Sanhedrin, they give us a negative example, don't they? They're hard-hearted. They're materialist. They're focused on what they can see and feel and touch. They're utterly convinced that they have everything figured out. They cannot be soft, they cannot be open, and they cannot be vulnerable. And so in their hardened hearts and minds, they reject Jesus. Now, some people, some unbelievers, they reject Jesus softly. They're ambivalent, uncommitted, fence-sitters. Jesus calls them neither hot nor cold and says he will spit them out. Some unbelievers are like the Sanhedrin, angry, bitter, fearful, their reaction is violence, violent words, violent actions. Violence driven by fear of losing what they have. So this is it. This is the prayer and the goal for the week. Let us open our hearts, open our minds, be soft, be vulnerable. Let us let go of what we have, no matter how comfortable it is. Let us pray to be able to sit in the mystery, to sit in uncertainty, to let wonder wash over us so that we may see the kingdom of God. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, thank you for another beautiful day in western Colorado. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. 
Thank you for our friends and our family. Thank you that we have gotten to get together, that we got to worship together, that we get to share your word. Father, please break down our walls. Break down the things that separate us from you. Break our expectations. Break our whatever it is. Our habits, our the sins that we keep on going back to over and over again. Break us of those things, Father. This world desperately needs you. We desperately need you. So, Father, this week, today, please draw close to us. Shine your light on us. Pour your blessing out on us that the people could see you, that suffering would ease, that healing would come, that good words and good thoughts and good things would pour out. Yeah. Lift up our, our friends that are in the hospital to you for healing. Just, we just want us more time. Please, Lord, just give us more time. Father, we lift up our, our children to you for blessing as they go off to school that guard their hearts and guard their minds and guard their steps. Pour blessing out on them. We just want the best things for them, and we know that you do too. We do ask for uh, you to, to bless our little valley, that we would draw close to you, that people would turn back to you. And we ask that you bless our church, that you would give us provision, that you would give us whatever we need, whether it's correction or a turn or whatever it is that people would draw to you, that people that have never heard of you before, who have rejected you or who don't know, that they would hear, that they would see, that they would get the chance to be like those Samaritans, that they would get the chance to turn to you. We ask all of that in the loving name of your son, Jesus Christ.